A reading from Exodus. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, come no closer, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the, the Hivites, and the Jesuvites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out, out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this my title for all generations. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. There is nothing quite like a natural disaster to bring out the best and the worst in us as people, and I should add, as people of God. If you don't believe me, ask Joel Osteen. Some of us snicker a little bit at the name. He got clobbered this week in the news. 
Joel Osteen is a televangelist, and he runs one of the largest churches in Houston. And when he and the leadership there decided not to open up their doors to people who were in need of shelter this week, his name was bandied about in social media and all over the press. And he found himself flat-footed and on the defensive, trying not to eat crow, even as many congregations much smaller than his Islamic, Jewish, and Christian were opening their doors to those in need in the wider Houston area. Believe it or not, I felt a little bit sorry for Joel this week. Not because he's poor, he's not. He's reportedly worth $50 million himself. Not because his congregation is small, it's not. His Church can seat 16,000 quite comfortably. We're lucky if we get 100 in here on a Sunday. And even the largest Episcopal church in the country, which happens to be in Houston as well, St. Martin's, has only about 6,000 members. I felt sorry because his theology did not equip him for the magnitude of human suffering that was happening around him. He is the face right now of what has been called the prosperity gospel. But I have to tell you this, he didn't invent it. Nor did the bakers, a generation before him, you remember them? Nor did their ancestors. The prosperity gospel goes back a long way. In fact, you could argue there's evidence of it in today's reading from Matthew. You remember Peter last week, how he got it right? Do you remember? And Jesus was so impressed with him, he said, right you are, Simon, son of Jonah, Matthew played on the name of the Old Testament prophet who got it right at least part of the time. Also, the most impetuous prophet in the Old Testament, I might add, if you remember the story of Jonah, I'll tell you that another time, or you can ask me during coffee hour if you like. But there's a way in which Peter is related to a prophet who didn't quite want to do what God told him, but was willing to jump in with both feet just the same. Peter got it right last week. This week, Peter gets it flat wrong. And it's only a few verses after he gets it right. Peter gets it so wrong this week that Jesus sees him as nothing less than a source of temptation, And so he rebukes him as Satan, the tempter, the most powerful language probably he could come up with. And I have this very clear image of Peter sputtering at the side of the road, not sure what to say next. Peter is, of course, in some ways a personification of the church because we too get it right some of the time and absolutely wrong at other times.
Peter was caught up in what we might call the prosperity gospel. The Messiah, whom he calls Jesus, the Messiah was supposed to do all these wonderful things for the people of Israel. Throw the Romans out, restore the ancient Davidic dynasty, bring back prosperity. And of course, I can't help but imagine that Peter thought that he and the other disciples would be living before long in a gilded palace with all the comforts they could imagine on top of the heap. Maybe because there were 12 of them, each in charge of a tribe. That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? That was probably something close to what Peter imagined when he said that Jesus was the Messiah. Peter was a child of the prosperity gospel. But then Jesus starts talking about what's really going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem. And he talks about crosses and death, the scattering of the flock, all of the things that nobody signed up for, least of all Peter. And so he takes his teacher aside and begins to rebuke him. But the prosperity gospel can't be traced just back to the first century. It goes back even further. We see signs of it in today's reading from Exodus. It takes a little bit of imagination, but if you know the context of this story, you'll realize that Moses, too, was a child of what we might call the prosperity gospel. Do you remember just a week or two ago, he was fished out of the Nile by the daughter of Pharaoh. He was rescued from the death that Pharaoh had ordered for all of the male boys of the Hebrew people. And thanks to some clever maneuvering by Moses' sister, they brought Moses' mother back into the picture to nurse him and ultimately to raise him but always in the protection of Pharaoh's family. You remember the name of the Disney film, right? Prince of Egypt. Moses grew up a child of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel in Egypt was pretty clear, and it was like most ancient prosperity gospels. You did the right things, you gave the right sacrifices, you honored Pharaoh, and you knew how your gods worked and operated, and if you did everything right, the Nile would flood as it would every year. You would have abundant crops, maybe enough to put away, and life would be good. What we don't hear in today's story is what happened to Moses after he became an adult The authors of Exodus give us a few short verses to explain that one day Moses saw an Egyptian beating one of his brother Hebrew people. And Moses, in a fit of rage, killed the Egyptian. And when word got out about that, Pharaoh put a mark on Moses' head, so Moses had to flee. The life of the prosperity gospel had squeezed 
Moses out and pushed him to Midian. There, Moses met Jethro and married one of his daughters and inherited the family business, which was taking care of the sheep. He was basically now a nomad, a no-name, a no-one. He was on the wrong side of the prosperity gospel. As Episcopalians, we find ourselves these days on the wrong side of the prosperity gospel. We look at all the stats, and attendance is down. We have lost a lot of our influence in American society. Some of us are old enough to remember when we held great sway, when the Episcopal Church was the place to come to if you were anyone or anything in wider society. It was the church of high society, the church, if you will, of the prosperity gospel. So it's not like Mr. Osteen invented this. We, too, are children of the prosperity gospel. But a little bit like Moses, sometimes we find ourselves on the outside, looking in. Moses, I suppose, believed himself by this point to be permanently in exile, to be forever on the outside. He had probably lowered his expectations to the point where he knew he was going to be taking care of sheep, not sheeple, but sheep, for the rest of his life, raising his family quietly on the outside. And then God comes and calls him. A nobody. A no-name. Somebody who can't be trusted as far as you can throw him. A murderer, no less. Is being asked by God to go back to Egypt and lead his people out of bondage. So you can understand how Moses is caught rather flat-footed and says, yeah, right. How is this going to work? And what kind of God are you to ask somebody like me to do this? There's a whole litany of reasons why this won't work, not least of which is Moses doesn't feel like he's a good public speaker, and yet he's being called to go and confront Pharaoh. God is not very helpful, I'm afraid. In Egypt, Moses would have recognized the names of the gods and what they were responsible for. The God of the sun, the God of death and the afterlife, the God of war. They all had names, and there were clear ways to be in relationship with them, right and wrong. But this God identifies himself as, I am who I am. Would you trust a God who said that to you? It's a play on the Hebrew name, 
Yahweh, which is a derivation from the verb to be. Not the ground of all being, which Paul will later use in his writings and words and teachings, but the God who causes things to be. The God the Hebrew people will come to later recognize that has created everything. But Moses doesn't know that yet. All Moses sees is a burning bush, and probably part of him thinks he's going crazy. Not the God of the prosperity gospel. This is the God, Moses hears, of our ancestors. This is the God who calls Jesus out of a no-name life as well in a little dusty town called Nazareth. This is the God who calls our Lord and Savior not to throw the bums out and restore the ancient glory of the people of Israel, but to go to Jerusalem and give up his life to embrace suffering. You see, if we really do have a God whose name relates to being itself, we have to have a God who understands not just our prosperity, but our suffering as well. Who understands what it means when a major American city is underwater. A God who understands what it means that some people will have the wherewithal to get through this disaster and others will struggle for the rest of their lives to recover. A God who understands what it means when we've done everything right and we still end up on the outside looking in. The face of our brother Joel Osteen this week was our face reflected back when the prosperity gospel no longer works. When we are faced by something of such enormous magnitude, either personally or as a society, that we can't understand what we've even imagined doing to deserve this. Our God is a God who understands that moment and who embraces that moment, and who meets us in that moment, just like God met Moses, just like God promises to meet Jesus and his followers, even in the depths of complete dissolution and betrayal. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. The prosperity of this world will not get you there, he says. Everything that the world calls good and beautiful and abundant will not get you there. Only if you come as you are with all of your imperfections and all that you have suffered 
and all that you have endured, only then will you understand who God is. The God who says, I am. We relive this teaching week after week as a Christian community. Sometimes because we are a liturgical church, I think we get a little bit too comfortable when we say our confession and then we come forward to receive the broken bread and the common cup. But I want you to hear that anew today and think about what it means to declare our own brokenness right before we receive the broken bread. To take up our cross, whatever that cross has been for you and for us as a community and for us as a wider people. And to gather that all up together around God's table. The God who comprehends who we are, where we have been, perhaps even where we are headed. Because our God is not a God who promises prosperity. Prosperity is not enough for our God. And God knows prosperity is not enough for us. What we need is not prosperity, but new life. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing community welcoming those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You may reach us by phone at 415-388-1907, search for us online, or visit our website at OurSaviorMillValley.org. We wish you God's peace. We hope to greet you in person very soon.